scripture reading for today is from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 24, verses 36 um, through chapter 25, verses 13. And it's found in page 830 in your pew Bible. But concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days, before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they were, aware, they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. Then two men will be in the field. One will be taken and one left. Two women will be grinding in the mill. One will be taken and one left. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore, you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour that you do not expect. Who then is the faithful and wise servant? whom his master has set over all his household, to give them their food at the proper time. Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly, I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. But if that wicked servant says to himself, My master is delayed, and begins to beat his fellow servants, and eats and drinks with the drunkards, The master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him, and at an hour he does not know, and will cut him in pieces and put him with the hypocrites. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish, and five were wise. For when the foolish took their lamps... They took no oil with them, but the wise took flasks of oil with their lamps. As the bridegroom was delayed, they also became drowsy and slept. But at midnight there was a cry, Here is the bridegroom, come out and meet him. But all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, Since there will not be enough for us and for you, go rather to the dealers and buy for yourselves. And while they were going to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast, and the door was shut. Afterward, the two virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, Truly I say to you, I do not know you. Watch, therefore, that you know neither, for you know neither the day nor the hour. The grass withers, the flower fades. Let's pray together. Father, we rejoice at your word as those who have found great spoil. There is treasure here for us that you intend there is food here Uh, for us. There is safety. There is life and death set before us. 
there is eternal life uh, offered to us in Christ. Uh, so many uh, gifts do you intend to give us today? And so we are eager to pray first, uh, first that you would prepare our hearts to receive uh, your word at, wherever that word takes us. We renounce at the beginning of our study this morning any right to set limits upon what you might say to us. We have no rights to silence you. And you have every right in Jesus Christ to expect that we will present our whole selves to you as living sacrifices. It is your will that must be done, not ours. This is not natural for us to submit like that. It is a supernatural fruit of supernatural power. The power of the Holy Spirit. And we pray for him and his ministry now. We pray also for his ministry in drawing and your gracious drawing through him uh, the lost to your son, the Lord Jesus, because he himself told us that no man can come to him unless you, the Father, draw him and that everyone who is taught of God will uh, come to the Son. Those are, those are the things we pray for. You've, you've stated them through your Son as your will and as your way, and we now plead with you to bring them to pass so that you might make this the day of salvation for many. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, friends, the entire Christian life is lived in the overlapping shadows of two uh, vast and uh, vastly beautiful landmarks. Um, I don't know, and, and really all of history now uh, is lived out in the shadow, the overlapping shadows of these two landmarks. And they are, they are very imposing landmarks. They are very huge landmarks, although the world won't necessarily recognize them, and then we often forget their true scale and magnitude. What are those two landmarks? Well, those two landmarks are the first and second comings of the Lord Jesus Christ. And uh, we uh, easily lose track of how important there are, they are. And saying that all of history is lived, and that particularly all of the Christian life is lived in the overlapping shadows of these two landmarks, is simply another way of saying that the entire Christian life is about the crown rights of Jesus Christ. This table before us is a king's feast that is purchased, has been purchased at a king's ransom, the cost of a king's ransom. Literally, it cost a king. And it's a table, it's a feast that prepares us for that king's return. Listen to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Did you hear the crown rights of Jesus Christ? The Lord's death. His, 
the, the, the Lord's first coming. Paul's saying this, this table is about the Lord's first coming, the Lord's death, which tells you that, that the cross is how Jesus, the incarnate Son of God, chose to use. It's the place where and how he chose to use his crown in his first coming. So the cross is about the crown rights of Jesus Christ. What he was willing as the eternal Son of God, incarnate, born of a virgin, born under the law, made like his brethren in all things except sin. How he chose to use his crown. He didn't lose his crown on the cross. That's how he used his crown. And all of history and all the Christian life has to be lived in light of that. But notice as well the other aspect of the crown rights of Jesus that Paul emphasizes. We are proclaiming, when we eat this bread and drink this cup, we're proclaiming the Lord's death. Not, not any ordinary person's death, but the Lord's death. I mean, that, just that phrase is amazing. Until he comes. He's alive. And he's coming back. And he will come back in his second coming to take possession, rightful possession of all that and all who are rightfully his. And the Christian life is lived in view of both of these landmarks. And the Christian life is supposed to bring both of those landmarks into view constantly. Now what we've seen in recent weeks as we've been in Matthew 24 and 25 Uh, what is known as the Olivet Discourse, what we've seen is that Jesus has a very clear teaching agenda as he is taking his last steps toward his cross. And that teaching agenda is this. It is to equip his disciples and us uh, not merely to survive in the uh, time until his second coming, but to thrive in that age, uh, to thrive... uh, and to equip us for persevering in faithfulness to him. And this morning, what we're going to consider is two parables that Jesus tells at the end of chapter 24 and the beginning of chapter 25, which are still part of the same discourse. And these parables describe for us, through a couple of contrasts, what faithfulness in the age between Jesus' first and second comings actually looks like for his disciples. And what I want to do, our roadmap, is we're going to begin by looking at some uh, orienting uh, things that the two parables have in common. I know your outline says that there are only two things that the parables have in common, but I've added a third at no extra cost to you, okay? And then we're going to look at the two individual parables themselves. So let's, let's think first about uh, just observations, uh, three guiding observations uh, that, that both, uh, par- about what both parables have in common. And it's important to see these common emphases because they, they make it very clear, uh, they make it very clear what, uh, what faithfulness is going to look like in this age. And I want you to notice three things that these two parables have in common. First, we're going to look at their internal focus. Secondly, we're going to look at their relational focus. And and thirdly, their central focus. Okay, first, both parables have 
an internal focus. And by that, I mean that Jesus aims both of them at the inside of his church. Parable number one is about a household. Just look at the imagery that Jesus uses. Um, this, he, he uses in the first parable the imagery of a household, and in the second one, essentially the, the imagery of a wedding party. Now, this is a big deal. It's a very important thing to recognize that these parables Jesus is telling to his disciples, and they are about the inside of his church. So in Jesus' mind, the people who need to understand most clearly and who need most urgently to, who need instruction most urgently about the implications of his second coming are precisely those who profess to embrace his first coming. People inside the church. So are you ready to learn, those of you who are inside the church, are you ready to learn about the Lord's second coming and the implications that it needs to have for your life? Not, not for the lives of those outside, but for our lives. This imagery that Jesus uses is very startling. A household and the contrast in that first parable between two servants in the same household. Not not between a servant in the household and a stranger to the household, but two servants in the same household. And in the second parable, we have uh, the, the distinction among the ten virgins, five wise and five foolish. Again, you have a distinction within a group, not a distinction between someone who's part of the group and someone who isn't. Everyone in both of these groups, right? I mean, both images reinforce the idea of responsibility and they remove the excuse of ignorance, right? All the servants in the household knew what the authority structure was. All the virgins who have come out to wait for the bridegroom, they knew what the point was of waiting for the bridegroom. And therefore, all of them emphasize accountability. And no one can say, no one can say in the household or among the virgins who wait for the bridegroom, but, but no one told me. No one gets to say that. So if you look earlier in chapter 24... Last week, we looked, uh, as part of what we did last week, you look at verse 31 in chapter 24, Matthew 24, which is this vision of what, uh, what Jesus will do at his return. In verse 31, Jesus told us that he, as the Son of Man, will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. That's... That's this great eternal division. I mean, it is a very sobering thing to consider (laughs) that there will be a point in time when Jesus returns, and when he returns, there will be a division among people that is made plain and that has eternal consequences. Jesus will gather his elect to himself. It's the same thing that he is describing in verses 40 and 41 when he uses the image of Noah and the flood. 
Look at verse 40 and 41. Then two men will be in. This is what the coming of the Son of Man is going to be like. People are going to go on living. They're going to go on working. They're going to go on building houses. They're going to go on getting married and going to weddings. And then the coming of the Son, they'll live like life is just ordinary. Like this is all you do is you go to weddings and work for the rest of your life. There's no, there's no transcendent meaning to human life. And then one day, at an hour that no one knows except the Father, the king of history is going to come back. And in that moment, there will be a division, right? Two men will be in the field. One will be taken and one left. One will be gathered to Jesus as one of his elect and the other will not be. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken and gathered by the angels. And one will not be. It is an awesome thing to consider that not everyone is going to be saved, my friends. There are only two options. But with these two parables that Jesus tells of the household and the virgins, Jesus is filling the warning out even further. And it's getting much closer to home because he shows us, he shows us in these two parables that this eternal chasm among people, between the saved and the unsaved, is not, in the end, as simplistic as saying it's the division between those who are in the church and those who are outside the church. You can't assume, based on these parables, that everyone in the church is Christ's. You see, the real division in humanity, the ultimate division in humanity, is, between, is not between those who are in the visible church and those who are outside the visible church, but those who are in Christ and those who are not in Christ. And that division, these parables press home to us, that division between those who are in Christ and those who are not in Christ, that division is present inside his church, inside his visible church before his return. Now that's very sobering. Jesus is very graciously and lovingly and uncompromisingly disturbing our peace. Because not everyone inside his visible church will be saved. Because not everyone in his church is in him. Now friends, the inside of the church of Jesus Christ is simultaneously the safest and the most dangerous place on this planet. It is the safest and the most dangerous place on the planet because in the church of Jesus Christ, the truth about the gospel is clearest. And you say, well, wait a second. Why else would somebody come to the church? Why else would somebody be in worship? 
Why else would somebody be a church member? Why else would somebody uh, contribute money? Why else would they, would they bring their kids to church? Why else would they study the Bible? Friends, you do know, don't you, that there are all kinds of reasons besides Jesus Christ that somebody would participate in a church. You know that, right? There are moral reasons that you could be here. You don't like what's happening out there. There are political reasons that you might be here. There are social reasons that you might be here. You might hope to develop a a network of friendships here. There are economic or financial reasons that you might be here. You might uh, be in a sales business or own your own business, and you might actually be here because you want to cultivate a clientele. There, there could be familial reasons that you're here. You are so concerned. You grew up so poorly that you are so desperate for your kids to not have the same suffering and struggles that you did. So you bring them to church. There might be marital reasons that you're here. What you really want to save is your marriage. Or you might be here to please your spouse. There could be economic, excuse me, there could be intellectual issues that you are here. At least in the church, they talk about big issues. There could be cultural reasons that you're here. There could even be spiritual reasons that you're here. There could be emotional reasons that you're here. You just want to hear about goodness and love and grace. Friends, you could pursue all those agendas, and still be outside Christ, inside his church. And I don't want that for you. That is why, that is why we, as a church, will always, by God's grace, trumpet the gospel and the cross every week from every corner and nook and cranny in every worship service. Because Jesus is saving people outside his church and he's saving people inside his church. Remember what our Lord himself says in the Sermon on the Mount. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. What? but the one who does the will of my Father in heaven. On that day, speaking of his second coming and judgment day, on that day, this is what Jesus says. This is not some uh, unhappy Presbyterian pastor making this up. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, Jesus says, I never knew you. Oh, friends, I plead with you. Don't be inside the church, but outside of Christ. The wonderful news is that Jesus Christ is present today in all of his saving power, in all of his saving willingness, in all the fullness of his saving achievements, and he stands ready and willing and able to save any and all who will come to him this morning. 
and I plead with you to come. So that's the internal focus of these parables. It's for the inside of the church. Secondly, I want you to notice their relational uh, focus. And, and in this, what I'm trying to emphasize is what Jesus is emphasizing here, which is that when he's describing his second coming in these parables, he's very careful to describe it less as an event, like it's something that's going to happen at some point in the future, and more in terms of a person's arrival. Now, that's important because in the first parable, what we see is it's about, it's not about some abstract day of judgment or reckoning, but what it's about is a person with authority coming back and being found on that day in the presence of a person to whom you're accountable. In the first parable, it's the master who owns the household. In the second parable, it's the bridegroom, which is the whole point. The bridegroom determines who gets to come into the feast. And notice what what the bridegroom says to the five foolish virgins. I do not know you. You see, it's all about a relationship. In both parables, everything turns on a relationship. And do you know why? Because everything in reality turns on relationship. Absolutely everything in reality turns on our relationship to Jesus Christ. And, and, and I'll say it this way because I'm addressing the inside of the visible church. Not on whether we have one. Because if you're here you are related to Jesus Christ in some way. If you are professing Christian, you already are living inside claims about a relationship with Jesus Christ. So it's not about whether you have one, but the question is whether you, how you are stewarding that relationship. Because the lives that we actually live reveal our actual relationship with Jesus. The lives we live reveal our deepest longings. You know, in the case of the household parable, the longer the faithful and wise servant served the master, the more he longed for the master's return. The longer the wicked servant disobeyed his master, the less he longed. his master's return. The longer the five wise virgins waited for the bridegroom, the more they longed for the bridegroom. Well, how about you? The longer you live, my friends, the longer you live, are you longing more or less for Jesus Christ and his return? When you this morning come, those of you who are Christians come to the Lord's table. Do you expect to have your appetite filled or stirred? Are you going to get enough of Christ there? Or are you going to to experience a stirring in your heart? A longing that is reawakened and refocused, that is wrapped up with gratitude and thanksgiving and humility and worship where you long for the coming of your king so that you will no longer walk by faith but by sight and you will sit down at table with him. Is that your longing? 
Do you know how the book of Revelation ends the second to the last verse? Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. That's how the Bible ends. Come, Lord Jesus. Is that your prayer? Do you know what Paul's talking about in Philippians 3 when he says, our citizenship is in heaven, and, and from heaven we eagerly await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will come and he will transform the body of our humble state. into When he comes, he's going to transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory. Do you long for that? When you feed this morning at the table... Are you strengthened for that longing? Or are you just here to kind of check in and be content with a morsel? You see, how you live reveals your actual longings. And then finally, I want you to see the central focus of all these, of both parables. And what I mean by that is that we are not the central focus. (laughs) It's all, I almost didn't include this because it seems so obvious. I mean, parable number one. I mean, of course, it's from the servant's perspective, but who is that whole story about? It's about the master. And the, the parable of the ten virgins, who is that ultimately about? It's about the bridegroom. You see, what both these parables remind us of is that we are not, I mean, what Jesus is doing, not just here, but really the Bible does it everywhere. The Bible is always graciously, but very relentlessly, copernically evicting us from the center of our lives. We are not the center of our own lives. God is. We think, and even as Christians, we think, we live as though we are the center of the Christian life. As though Jesus himself were in orbit around us. As though all of our fellow Christians were in orbit around us. As though all the events that happen in the world are in orbit around us. Uh, uh, Uh-uh-uh. Jesus is the center of the Christian life. We are in orbit around his glory. We have been situated again through these parables in a larger story. It's a much better story. It's a glorious story. Yes, we are in another's household, but that household is the household of a gracious and generous king. We are at another's wedding. But he's not just someone else's bridegroom. He's ours. Oh, friends. We need to repent of our jealousy for keeping ourselves at the center of our own lives. The real story about the master, the real story about the bridegroom is so much more beautiful than the one, than the version where we're at the center. So let's look now. Those are the, 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 guiding, uh, the guiding observations about all three, what they, about the two parables, what, what, they, what they have in common. Now let's look at the parable of the two servants, which is in uh, verses 45 through 51. It's an interesting parable because what you see is that Jesus is describing the contrast between two servants who are in the same household. 
They are entrusted with the same responsibility. They are given, therefore, the same opportunity to serve the same master through the very same delay. Servants in the same household, entrusted with the same responsibility by the same master and therefore who have the same opportunity presented to them to serve that master and to do so throughout the same delay. And everything about these servants is the same except their hearts. And those hearts are revealed. The truth about their hearts is revealed in their polar opposite responses to the master's delay. Look at the faithful and wise servant whom Jesus describes in verses 45 through 47. It's an interesting story because he uses the master's delay as an opportunity to serve the master more, not less. Look at verse 45. Who then is the faithful and wise servant whom his master has set over his household to give them their food at the proper time? This is a servant who's received a charge from his master. Okay? Now look at what is said about the servant. Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. In other words, what makes him faithful and wise is that he uses the opportunity, or he uses his master's delay as an opportunity to obey and serve the master more, not less. And notice, I want you to notice this. This is very interesting. Notice the nature of the master's charge to him. This is not a small detail. What does the master tell him to do? He sets him, oh look at verse 45, he sets him over his household to give them their food at the price. Who's the them? The other members of the household. In other words, oh boy, this has huge implications. The picture that Jesus is drawing is of a master over a household who entrusts to one servant, right, the responsibility to care for the other members of the household, to steward the master's resources, to make sure that they are fed and nourished and built up at the proper time. In other words, and that's what the master's going to measure him against. That's what verse 46 is about, right? Blessed, where's blessing come from? Why is blessing pronounced on him? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. In other words, what is going to be the, the, uh, the reason for that servant's blessing from the master when the master arrives is that the servant will have fulfilled the the master's vision that he take care of those inside the household with him. Friends, wise and faithful waiting for Jesus' second coming requires his commands to serve him within and among his church. The household of Jesus Christ. The household he purchased with his own blood at his first coming. You cannot wait wisely or faithfully on your own. Take heed. Wise and faithful living until the second coming is not a solo performance that you carry out with a weekly check-in to some disembodied pastor of an invisible congregation on a television. 
wise and faithful waiting uh, is, is carried out exactly where Jesus intends that everyone who is in his church will be embedded, the local church. The local church, my friends, is never intended in the New Testament as a part of the Christian life. It is the God-designed context for the Christian life. The God-given context for the Christian life. There are lavish riches that Jesus Christ has poured out among every one of his people in every local church a fortune of his favor, a fortune of the spoils of his victory. And when you or I live as though faithful waiting for him were a solo performance, we are denying ourselves access to the very fortune that Jesus provided, that he put up for us in the church that we might endure to the end and so be saved. It is insanity. And it, you know, it's a particularly American insanity. Jesus did give you a personal relationship with him if you are in Christ. He did not give you, nor does he give anyone, a private relationship with him. Friends, if the servant is commanded by his master to give the other servants their food at the proper time, then how much more does Jesus address each one of us who profess to be his with his commands to serve him by feeding, by nourishing, by investing, by building up, by adding to, by contributing to the flourishing of and loving the other members of his household. You see, we're going to take the, the Lord's Supper later this morning, and one of, the, one of the warnings that the Apostle Paul gives in 1 Corinthians 11 is, if you don't discern the body, you cannot partake worthily of the Lord's Supper. And discerning the body, there's so much argument about this. I think it's very deliberate. We're, we're to discern the body horizontally as well as vertically. So, it, you know, the table, in other words, is not designed for solo performers. It's a community project. It's a gift to a community. The very sacrament that Jesus gives us is a, a, a sacrament of fellowship. It assumes a community. Look at the wicked servant. Verses 48 through 51. And though he serves the same master in the same house, is entrusted with the same opportunity, the same responsibility, his response is totally different, isn't it? And we all need to consider his example very soberly and carefully because how does he use the master's delay? He uses the master's delay to serve the master less, not more, as the opportunity for disobedience rather than obedience, as the opportunity for unfaithfulness and unholiness rather than faithfulness and holiness. And notice again how this servant's, the true state of this servant's heart is revealed in his relationship to the other members of the household. Do you notice what it is that marks his unfaithfulness? Uh, Verse 48. But if that wicked servant says to himself, my master is delayed. In other words, he has an agenda that he keeps to himself, that he hides. He's dwelling in the midst of these other servants, and he's like, huh, how can I use this? 
And look at what he does. He begins to beat his fellow servants. And he eats and drinks with drunkards. In other words, he takes the food and the resources that the master put up for his fellow servants. And what does he do? He spends it not on them according to the master's will, but on people who are outside the household. Friends, Jesus loves his church. He is jealous for his church. He expects everyone who belongs to him to love his household, to live in his household, and not to visit it. Time will tell. Time will tell, just as it did for these servants. Time will tell the truth about us, who we are and whose we are. Now let's reflect on this parable. It's important to realize that we are not free in this time before the Lord's second coming. We are not free to do whatever we want. We are servants in the household of Jesus Christ, which means that we have been freed to do whatever he wants until his return. That's the reason we've been set free. Free to do what he wants, not what he wants. And he expects us to use the liberty that he has bestowed on us to pursue holiness, to pursue investing in his household. As in the parable, right, time is going to tell who and whose we really are. Each of us who professes faith in Jesus Christ needs to examine our hearts How are we using the master's time? It's the master's time. It's not ours. So how are we using it? As a privilege to serve him more or as an opportunity to serve him less? As the opportunity to pursue holiness and to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, Philippians 2, or as the opportunity to indulge and settle in with sin, to accept sin? to grow content with sin, to just give up fighting certain besetting sins in our lives. You know, I have a quote from Spurgeon on a post-it in my window. I can't see out of my window anymore because every important quote I like, I just put up in the post. I'm sure my neighbor wants to call the authorities because he looks in there. Why do you have a window, Mike? For post-its, that's why you have a window. And in this quote, Spurgeon says this, grace is the nurse and the mistress for holiness, not the apologist for sin. Grace is the nurse and mistress of holiness. When you really receive God's grace, it will grow holiness in your life. It will not make you an apologist for sin. Think about the Lord's Prayer. Forgive us our debtors. Forgive us our... Sorry. Forgive us our, yeah, please forgive me my debtors. Send them over there. (laughs) Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Forgiveness, right? Forgiveness. What's the very next petition? Lead us not into temptation. Grace begets holiness. Friends, you've been called to Jesus Christ 
to be a member of his household. What a gracious privilege. You didn't earn that entrance into his household. He gave it to you. It's the best place in the world. And it should beget a passion for holiness in us. Friends, you know, in motivation and incentive, I mean, what I'm saying to you requires a lot of hard work. What, because what Jesus is saying is going to require a lot of hard work. The gospel begets a lot of hard work. Not to qualify us to be saved, but to verify that we are. And motivation and incentive in the Christian life always are bidirectional. They look backwards and they look forwards. Motivation and incentive always look back to Jesus' first coming and what he did at the cross. And always look forward to his second coming. Right? Just even in the Lord's Prayer. We pray for the coming of God's kingdom, for his will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. That is a prayer for the Lord's second coming. I hope you don't resent Jesus' master-servant language in this parable because it's very, very good news. When he tells us this parable, he is on the verge, my friends, of consummating a purchase transaction. That's what he did at Calvary. This was a purchase transaction when he spent his blood in order to acquire, and he actually did acquire at the cross Not the potential salvation of people who might one day believe in him, but the actual eternal salvation of a people chosen from before the foundation of the world. He purchased those people fully on the cross. And do you know what else? He purchased all the rights to all their lives. But this is what is so amazing. Well, If you think about that, that means that exactly what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, I've been bought with a price. I am not my own. I am not free to do what I want. I have been freed to do what he wants. And look at what he did to free me. I want to want what he wants. Because that purchase transaction is not like any other purchase transaction. Jesus acquired all the rights to all the lives of all his people. But why did he make that acquisition? This is what is so amazing about the gospel, not to create slaves, although he would have every right to do that. He acquired all the rights to our lives so that he could give us and we could enter into and enjoy all the rights of his Friends, when you think, and, 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 and in his second coming, he is going to enable us to sit down with him, he says in Revelation 3, on his throne. So motivate, how can you not want to serve that master? How can you hold anything back from him? How can any pursuit of holiness or faithfulness to him be too much? Okay, the Ted Virgins. It's an interesting parable. Here's another contrast, this time between five wise virgins and five foolish ones. In the background, we need to understand this, is that it would have been customary 
for the bridegroom in this village setting, for the bridegroom to go and collect his bride at her house, at her home, maybe even be married there, it's a little unclear, but then to return with her to his home for the wedding feast. And so there would uh, typically be some kind of procession. So that, it's important to understand that because what that means is that the ten virgins are not some kind of random, you know, rubberneckers. Oh, there's a wedding. They're part of the, of the custom. They have well-defined and well-understood roles. They know that their role is to light the way for the couple's return to the feast. And that's why all ten of them set out with lamps, or probably, actually, the better translation is torches. So ignorance is not an excuse for them. And what is it that distinguishes the wise uh, virgins from the foolish ones? Well, it's, it's not that some have torches and some don't. Did you notice that? They all, they all end up in the same place. They're all part of the same group. They all have uh, torches or lamps, but what distinguishes them is the wise brought flasks of oil with them because the nature of these torches was such that they constantly, the, the oil had to be constantly replenished. But the foolish don't bring any oil with them from the very beginning. This is really important to see. From the very beginning, right, the, the, the foolish virgins don't take, their, their first step is wrong because they never take the first step that they need in order to fulfill the, the apparent purpose for which they are participating in the group. They never take the first step. One of the commentators I read said this would be equivalent to carrying a flashlight with no batteries in it. And that's important to understand so, because it's not, that's why they're so blameworthy. Right? It's not that they simply underestimated how long they were going to have to wait and they said, well, is he going to come back? And I don't know. I don't think I need to bring a flask of oil. The whole point was if you were part of that waiting party, of course you brought a flask of oil. So from the very beginning, in their first step, they have rejected, they have rejected the very purpose of the gathering to begin with. They are unready. They are unprepared. And so it is, it is right for the wise virgins to say, no, get your own. Because that is a step no one could take for them. Friends, no one can be prepared for you. No one can be prepared for you. Each of us is required to repent. Each of us is required to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and entrust our whole selves to him. Each of us is required to admit and acknowledge that there are all kinds of reasons you could be here inside the church besides Jesus Christ and him crucified. All those reasons I listed earlier. Why are you here? What are you thinking specifically about Jesus Christ 
and your relationship to him at this very moment? Are you handling or holding a flashlight without batteries? Have you, have, do you find yourself in the church without taking that first fundamental step? You know what it is that, that is to define the church is trusting in Jesus Christ. We are a community of people redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. This is not a social club. This is not a family training place. This is a place, a band of people who have been washed clean by the blood of the Lamb. Our lives have been purchased by Him. And and not because we were meritorious, but because He is. Is that why you're here? Is He why you're here? and specifically what he has done. And have you taken that first step, my friends, of yielding your entire life to the one who yielded his entire life to you on the cross, who bore the sins of his people in their place on the cross? Friends, don't assume that because you're here, you've taken that first step. But don't leave here without taking it. No one can be prepared for you. Your parents can't prepare you. You can't can't rely on your parents' preparation. It may be that your parents are Christians. You might be covenant children. If you're old enough to understand what I'm saying, your parents' faith is not a safe harbor for you. It may be that your spouse is a Christian. Well, the promise in 1 Corinthians 7 does not exempt you from the obligation to respond to Jesus Christ's royal summons on your own terms. It may be that you think, hey, I go to a church where the Bible is taught. Our Our pastors and our elders, they believe the gospel, not good enough. I'm part of a denomination that believes, not good enough. I read the right books, not good enough. I listen to the right program, no. Jesus wants to know what you've done with him. Not what you've done. Not what others have done with him. Friend, time is going to tell who and whose you really are and who I really am. You know this word that's translated, I'm I'm not done yet. I heard it. This word that's translated torches or lamps here in, in, uh, in Matthew 25, it shows up somewhere else. It shows up in John 18, verse 3. When our Lord, at the end of the high priestly prayer, leaves the upper room and goes into the garden with his disciples, and Judas and the officers of the high priest and the Roman soldiers show up, they come with torches. You see, this is, this one who called, this bridegroom who calls us to wait for him has made every preparation for us, not merely to be guests at his wedding feast, but to be his beloved bride. The real story is so much bigger and more beautiful than this parable. And so when we realize that he was willing under torchlight to be captured 
to, to be carried ultimately to his death to make preparation for us to enter, not only enter his feast, so the doors to his feast would be open for us, but that we would sit not as one of the guests, but as his beloved bride. Friends, when that sinks in, you will not be lazy. How could you be? Let's, let's pray. Lord, we're not waiting well, but we want to. We want to be like that faithful servant who's wise, and we want to be like the, the wise virgins. We want to be on pins and needles waiting for you, and we want to make sure that we have taken that first step and we've entrusted our whole selves to you in repentance and faith. And I pray particularly for those who are confused about whether or not there are any batteries in their flashlight that you will show them the truth and that you will call them to yourself today. I pray in your name. Amen. Please stand as we now sing, Oh, the